I-94 on Lumpen Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of I-94 at Pills and Community Books, though actually we're at a hallway tonight in front of the dial because we are very privileged to have with us tonight the author sitting right next to my right, as always. It is Ling Ma. She's the author of this book, In My Hand, that you here in the audience can see, but you folks at home cannot because this is radio. Please give her a big hand. I, I think that this may be the largest hallway crowd we've ever had at the dial. In fact, I don't think we've ever had a hallway crowd first, at the dial. Yeah, first ever. I, I think saw this is the, the largest first, crowd ever. It may be. I think yeah. this is the first time we've ever had to use a PA for you guys. Normally, you guys sit uncomfortably close to us, and you can smell us, and it's, it's kind of an uncomfortable <laughs> thing. Uh, but we are very privileged to have uh, Ling Ma here. She's written this new book called Severance. It's out now from Farrah Strauss and Giroux, which is an excellent house. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying that it is a dystopian book, sort of a modern zombie story. And Ling's gonna start us off actually reading a couple uh, paragraphs from this book so you kind of get a flavor of what's going on. It's difficult to start uh, talking about a novel with, a, with an author without some spoilers, so we encourage you to read this book right now in the 30 <laughs> seconds that it's gonna take for Ling to read this paragraph. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs of the prologue, so the very beginning of the book. Okay, after the end came the beginning, and in the beginning there were eight of us, then nine, that was me, a number that would only decrease. We found one, of the, one another after fleeing New York for the safer pastures of the countryside. We'd seen it done in the movies, though no one could say which one exactly. A lot of the things didn't play out as they had been depicted on screen. We were brand strategists and property lawyers and human resource specialists and personal finance consultants. We didn't know how to do anything, so we Googled everything. We Googled how to survive in wild, which yielded images of poison ivy, venomous insects, and bear tracks. That was okay, but we wanted to go on the offensive against everything. We Googled how to build fire and watched YouTube videos of fires being lit with flint against steel, with flint against flint, with magnifying glass and sun. We couldn't find the requisite flint, didn't know how to identify it even, and before we tried using Bob's bifocals, someone found a bic in a jean jacket. The fire brought us through the night and delivered us into a morning that took us to a deserted Walmart. We stockpiled bottled water and exfoliating body wash and iPods and beers and tinted moisturizer in our stolen Jeeps. In the back of the store, we found guns and ammo, camo outfits, scopes and grips. We Googled how to shoot gun, and when we tried, we were spooked by the recoil, by the salty smell and smoke, by the liturgical drama of the whole thing in the woods. But Actually, we love to shoot them, the guns. We like to shoot them wrong, even, with a loose hand, the pitch forward and the pitch back. Under our judicious trigger fingers, beer bottles died, Vogue magazines died, chia pets died, oak saplings died, squirrels died, elk died. We feasted. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. And that was a reading from Severance by Ling Ma, read by the author herself, Ling Ma. So let's start off and talk a little bit about the background of this book. Um, 
again, I'm not thinking I'm giving up anything by saying it is a dystopian novel, and right now there seems to be a little trend in literature toward writing stories of apocalypse. We've seen a lot of films about the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Talking about end times, what, what drew you to this as a subject, first of all? And second of all, what did you feel you had to add to a genre that actually stretches back you know, quite a long way? I tried to do everything I could to avoid writing an apocalyptic uh, novel, simply because I also feel that the genre is overplayed. Um, but there was, I think I started this novel at my desk at work. I was getting laid off. It was the last few months that I was gonna be in the office. And it was just a short story back then. It was just for fun and it was apocalyptic. It was just for like the joy of being destructive. That's, that was it. It was like dumb joy. And after a while, um, it was also quite angry. So I tried to source that anger back to where it was coming from, which is it was coming from the office. It was coming from work. That's how this thing became apocalyptic office novel. Um, I was also binge watching a lot of Walking Dead and Mad Men, and I'm sure that like <laughs> somewhere in there, you know, I kind of mashed up the two <laughs> in some way. So it was a very um, strange time, uh, but I just kept rolling with what I had. Yeah. I wanted to add too. This isn't a zombie book. The there's no brain-eating zombies. They, they, that's right. They get what's called fevered and basically get locked into the routines. Would you say that's a good description? I think that's, yeah, that's very accurate. I wanted to ask you, um, so Candace, the main character, it works for a publishing company, and her, her job is to um, produce, uh, make sure they get manufactured Bibles, and there's a lot of references to the Bible uh, in this book. Mm -hmm. um, within Candace's job. Candace does some readings later in the Bible, and I believe John, Jonathan is kind of like a Messiah figure. Um, and I was wondering if that was intentional, or did you, um, what were you, was that something that you were um, thinking about? Were you thinking about biblical times while you were writing it, or is it just that was her job and that's kind of how it came mm. to be? I thought that, Talking about the manufacture of Bibles, which are manufactured in China or other places with cheap labor, I thought it was a great entry point to talking about consumerism because really the trick of selling Bibles is to take the exact same thing, repackage it, and then make you want to buy it again. And it works. And it works. And I mean, that is the Bible industry, um, there have been, you know, all sorts of Bibles for all sorts of demographics, Bibles with rubber covers, um, Bibles that come in a coach-like handbag, uh, Bibles that come in steel cases for when you're camping, like the camping Bible. If you go into like any Christian, you know, bookstore or even the Barnes and Noble, like Bible section, you'll see that huge array. And the trick is, how do you make consumers want to buy the same thing that they probably already have? Um, so I just thought it was such a ripe point for discussing consumerism or touching upon it in some way. Yeah, this, this book reminded me a lot of, of a few other books. White Noise was one of them. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, American Psycho, parts of American Psycho. 
that I because read. of the kind of sociopathy oh. of the characters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Candace Chen, the consumerism sociopath. critique. Totally. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, American Psycho gets a lot of lot of flack, but it's the best satire of Reagan's America ever, in my opinion. So. Yeah. I read that when I was like 16 or something, and, which was probably <laughs> I felt like it was too young to be <laughs> to read that. But I really liked American Psycho, and I'm a huge fan of Brett Easton Ellis in general. I am as well. Yeah. Um, it actually yeah. reminded me of was it How We Came to the End by Joshua Ferris which is the story of an advertising agency that shuts down. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'm the first person to make that comparison, but I, mm -hmm. it, when I recognized that, it did, uh, the two books very much resonated because I think what's interesting about this particular book and the character of Candace, and again, talking about this book is a little strange because I'm not necessarily sure the plot actually is what the book is about. It's like a noir novel. You kind of know that everybody dies at the end, right? We're, we're at the end times. So saying mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, dystopian characters are, are probably not going to make it is not supposed to be a secret to the, the reader. Mm -hmm. What you're really supposed to be concentrating on is what's happening with the characters and the character development and what you learn about the situations. Am I completely off base or? Yeah, I'm going with that. Going with that? So, <laughs> so <laughs> what, what my take was on this particular book, and it was, actually, I have to be quite candid, um, I read this uh, months ago and mm -hmm. then uh, promptly forgot about it because we read a large volume of books and mm -hmm. I remember I enjoyed it, but I read it last night before going to bed uh, and that was a very bad idea. Uh, I, I did not get much sleep last <laughs> night. I had very bad oh, unsettled Lord. dreams and so it was a very unsettling book and I kept thinking about many of the scenes and the situations in the book and what I would have done had I been um, confronted. There's a, there's a haunting scene in the book at, at the very end where the main character, Candace Chen, comes into the city of Chicago and she's driving up Milwaukee <laughs> Avenue and she's looking at the city and it made me think of, you know, well, what the heck, this is my city, I've been here 20 years and it's just been evacuated and bombed out and at midnight it was very unsettling. Um, where I'm going with this though is that, again, the, what was interesting to me about this book is where the characters went was not as interesting as how the characters interacted with one another. And I'm thinking particularly of the interactions between Bob, who is set up as the cult leader figure in the book, mm -hmm. and Candace, who is initially seen as somebody that doesn't have a lot of agency. She keeps going to work despite the fact that New York City's been evacuated. She doesn't seem to have a lot of agency with her boyfriend, Jonathan, that Jeremy's brought up. She has no agency at all with Bob's group. She's bullied and in fact at one point imprisoned. But that relationship changes and it becomes the fulcrum of the book so that you see how the other characters are seen by Candace and in turn by the reader. And that to me was the most magnetic and unsettling thing about the book because frankly most of the characters are not pleasant people, uh, including Candace. Bob is a total turd. Yes, he is. <laughs> but I thought, I thought that character was w written really, really well because... He's a very believable character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he, he's a really condescending... Um, Warcraft playing, yeah. Uh, yeah. which nothing against gamers, by the way. Lots of gamers listen to Lumpen Radio. Um, but <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to ask you, Ling, was you know, how much of this book was informed by your own experience at that job that was closing down? And you, you talked about that anger. How much time did you spend thinking of like, the directions things could go if everything went to hell? Because to me, as I started reading this book, that's where my mind went. And again, it was, it was disquieting, which I think is a, a compliment, frankly, to what you were doing. Well, I think I've, it wasn't the only job that I worked. I've worked at 
Quite a few. Um, right after college, I would say three different jobs, three main jobs. So I'm sure all of them informed me. Just out of curiosity, what's the worst, worst job you've ever worked? The worst job? I actually, I know this sounds like a very diplomatic response, but all of them had some value to me in some way, even if they were horrible at the time. <laughs> like I took something away from them. I mean, I had a really bad boss once, and she would like food chain me a lot, which was a little strange. But I was 23, and I didn't know any better. But stuff like that happens, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did she make it in the book? Uh, no. <laughs> Most of these characters are not direct. Uh, <laughs> they don't have a direct reflection in real life. Sorry to interrupt. You were talking about uh, no, work history. I wanted to That's mention... Okay. And for me, everything goes back to Flannery O'Connor. Um, uh, <laughs> Always. Yeah, I, I study Flannery O'Connor, and I love her. But, you know, with the biblical references, and what kept coming into my mind is, have you ever read the story Good Country People about the Bible salesman that steals the woman's wooden yes, leg? Yes, I've taught that in my classes a couple of times. Okay, yeah. that's like my favorite short story of all time. And whenever I think of a Bible salesman... Um, or the Bible in general, because I'm not a religious person. I, it goes back to Flannery O'Connor, because she was indeed very religious. And I'm going to ask you again: Was uh, um, did you did you you've taught you've taught her? But is, is spirituality part of this book? Because I feel like Candace has a little something more than everyone else in the novel, mm. um, especially um, the leader, whose name Joe Bob. Bob, um, Bob is a um, again kind of a born again. Bible thumping weirdo and she gets away from him mm -hmm. but she seems to have more depth and more of a grasp on some kind of you know inner meaning or something than those people would is is that a legitimate well Candace works in Bible production and her parents are Chinese immigrants to the US um, they are hardcore religious sort of Protestants um, they joined this place called, I forget what it's called in this novel, like the Chinese Christian Community Church. It was yeah, like a the CCCC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, which is a whole subculture in itself. And they joined that church when they moved to the U.S. And I was thinking about the sort of, I was thinking about the Protestant work ethic, like the value of work for its own good, the cleansing uh, value of work, and I was thinking about how perfectly that actually aligns with the immigrant imperative, which is to uh, be successful and to propagate, <laughs> like buy property and propagate. Like those are the two like dual things. And I think that maybe even though Candace herself is not explicitly religious, she's not explicitly a Christian, I think some of her upbringing going to Chinese church um, probably informs her in some way, yeah. There's, there's this really great uh, chapter that opens with a history of the, the Mormon migration from Illinois to, mm -hmm. to Utah, and, it, and it's contrasted with, with uh, Candace's parents emigrating to the U.S. from uh, Mm -hmm. How do you pronounce the city in China? Fuzhou? Fuzhou? Fuzhou. Fuzhou? Yeah. Fuzhou in the province of Fujian. That, that was an awesome, awesome page and a half. And, and I really liked that the historical aside. And you, you did it later in the book with um, ghetto palms. The, oh, the, yeah. The trees that grow up out of, out of uh, 
concrete. Yeah. yeah. Um, very big in Detroit, by the way, if you're oh, interested. Really? Also big in Ithaca, New York, where I was writing the novel at the time. I kept seeing those trees, like, what are they? Like, and I kind of Googled it, and it, like, it was a perfect thing to add, yeah. Oh, I, it, was, it was really good. It's short. It was only a paragraph, but um, I thought you had a knack for, for writing historically. I was just wondering if you had any interest in historical fiction or writing nonfiction historical pieces, or if you have before. I know you've written for The Reader, Playboy. Um, I can't um, else. I haven't so much. Um, I feel like uh, there's a lot more I need to learn before I'm ready to write anything about that. But as far as the ghetto palms, they're the interesting back. Okay, so that's like their street name, whatever. But their um, the other name they go by is the Tree of Heaven, and they actually originated in China. And, but they're everywhere in the Western world. Like they grow in cities and they, they're hard to kill. They pop out of the pavement. They're one of the few like hardy like plants that like will actually grow out of pavement and parking lots and- Edible? I don't think so, but <laughs> Try <laughs> maybe it. more research needs to be done on that, but. There was a, another piece of your writing that really stuck with me. Um, it's on page 222, and, and Candace is alone. Um, I have it marked right here if you want to oh, look. Oh, okay. Yeah. But she's by herself in her, in her studio, and her boyfriend had left his retainer. Oh, my God. And, a, and, a, and it was sitting in like a puddle of green mouthwash. And, um, she, it's not she, as ridiculous as it sounds, by the way. Yeah, and, and she pulls it out and shoves it in her <laughs> mouth, and she's looking at herself in the mirror with this, like, giant retainer sticking out of her mouth. Yeah. That's her boyfriend. Our, well, he's not in the picture anymore. And then she looks in the mirror with this things sticking in her mouth and yeah. realizes that she is, she's like, I'm totally alone now. I'm like in this, you know, I'm in the bathroom yeah. with this retainer that's not mine crammed in my mouth. That for me was like one of those memorable things that I've read in a book that I won't forget because like Jamie was saying, we read a lot of books and I work in a library, so I'm reading all the time. But that was like a perfect, um, a perfect one, two, four paragraphs, in my opinion. Oh, How you. did you come up with that? I, that's really gross. And um, it, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it's because uh, like I, I, I've, I've had retainers, you know, and they're nasty. And you leave them soaking, you pull it out, and it's like dripping. You don't even want to put your own in your mm -hmm. mouth. So how did you come up with that? Well, okay, so Jonathan is Candace's boyfriend, and he and Candace, I think they share different ideologies or they're very similar in that they're quite perceptive, but his solution to everything is you have to, you just check out, you opt out of the system, you don't have to make money, you just, um, you know, get by and eat dollar slices and, you know, you can make, you can make that work. And I think I really respect um, someone who has that ideology, but at the same time, it's a little bit juvenile maybe when you grow up and you have responsibilities so I wanted so Jonathan has a retainer maybe in part to uh, allude to that sort of juvenile quality perhaps and I guess that scene of mourning <laughs> as it were when Jonathan leaves New York and leaves Candace behind when she sticks that retainer in her mouth the thing with Candace that was such a struggle to write is that she is not emotionally forthcoming, but this is written in the first person. So how do I show that she's grieving in some way that she has, you know, 
feelings that she's really actually pretty broken up about Jonathan leaving. So it had to be something a little bit weird, a little bit grotesque. It had to be sort of uh, showcased in an action. So thus the action of her cramming that ill-fitting retainer. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. The other scene that I thought stuck out was when Candace decides it's finally time for her to leave New York, which happens when uh, she realizes that windows have started to be smashed in uh, Times Square and stores are being looted. She doesn't know by who or, or what because there's no one around and then she realizes that people that she'd seen around and taken for granted also are no longer there. I wanted to ask you, the, the character of Candace struck me as someone that took uh, security and safety almost for granted for a lot of the book. And when she's thrown into the situation that happens through the other kind of half of the book, it's mm -hmm. happening in time later with Bob, she doesn't really necessarily understand what the great danger is. And then, again, I, I don't mean to use a spoiler, but her mother starts talking to her in her dreams and warning her about these things. <laughs> is that accurate to, to say? And, and why, I guess, I guess my point is, what inspired you to have Candace behave in this way? Because she does seem off in regards to the rest of the characters in the book. Mm, there is some sort of like willful blindness happening, I think, with Candace, especially as she stays in that office in New York through the end days. Um, the point where she decides to leave New York, it's actually, so, there's an earlier scene in which she spots the Juicy Couture flagship shop <laughs> on Fifth, I believe it's on Fifth Avenue. It's no longer there, it used to exist, but it's made out of all glass. And one of the sales clerks inside of this glass store is fevered. And so she's just folding and refolding the merchandise over again. The scene, and that takes place earlier. The scene when Candace decides that she needs to get out of there is when the window is smashed in. The sales clerk, I think, is she's maybe brained. Yeah, she's been brained, and I think that's when Candace realizes she has to leave. There is some sort of respect, I believe, that Candace has for this fevered, juicy couture sales clerk. Though I think, she, in some way, she respects her for to keep going. You're keeping folding, yeah. She folds all the t-shirts extremely well. Mm-hmm, and I think, but seeing that she's been brained, she realizes, I've gotta go. Some readers have mentioned that they're, they weren't entirely sure whether Candace was fevered herself, and I wanted that ambiguity there just a little bit, um, just well, to make you question it. That, that's a, something I wanted to bring up. It seems that everybody in the book actually is fevered. It's just various <laughs> degrees of it. And I think that was yeah. kind of where you were maybe going with that. Am I off base? Yeah, the line between the fevered and non-fevered is precariously thin, <laughs> is how it seems. Yeah, and one of the things that Candace brings up that seems to um, bring on the fever is mm -hmm. nostalgia. And this happens when one of her uh, colleagues and her go on what the, the characters call a stalk, which is when they're going into people's houses and trying to gather goods and supplies. The, one of the young women with the group says, we're in Ohio, I want to go visit my parents' house. Poor I Ashley. haven't been back there, and this is a bad idea. Um, mm. that's, what, uh, that's what happens when, uh, I guess you hit the power cord. Um, <laughs> we're good. Um, Nostalgia is, is Candace's thing, though, that she puts and she blames it for. Is that correct? 
And, and why did you think, why does Candace feel that nostalgia is, in a sense, a dangerous thing? I don't know that Candace, well, okay. I think that Candace tends not to be super sentimental herself. This is what made writing chapter 16 so difficult because Candace is not super forthcoming about her memories. And um, chapter 16 is the chapter that goes into Candace's background and uh, like the story of her parents. And I had a really difficult time writing that chapter because Candace did not want to talk about it. Um, so the solution to chapter 16 was simply to begin in the third person omniscient voice instead of first person and then keep going and then slowly Candace with her first person voice took it over. I'm not, I think, I do think about how immigrants often compartmentalize themselves um, in terms of before and after and often how that how it's better just to keep moving forward in some way. But Shen Fever is sort of, I think it's inspired by a lot of things actually. Shen Fever being like, the symptoms being like you repeat doing certain actions and certain routines over and over again. I was thinking about factory workers um, in China and the nature of factory like assembly line work, how repetitive that is. And so how do I take that and how do I make that into a disease that everyone suffers from <laughs> in the first world? <laughs> um, so that was another aspect of Shen Fever I was thinking about in making, yeah, in making it. With that, we have to go to a commercial break, but we're gonna be back. This is I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Ling Ma, please give it up for her. Thanks. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. You are listening to I-94 on WLPNLP 105.5 FM. As always, my name is Jamie Trecker. That is Michael Sack. Hello. That is Jeremy Kitchen. Hi. And we are joined today live from the Dial Bookshop with the author of Severance, out now from Farrah Strauss and Giroux, Ling Ma. Please give her a big, big, big Thanks, round of applause. And you can tell by this round of applause, there are a lot of you here, and we have a lot of questions in this little book that we are going to get to uh, during the last 15 minutes of the show. But we want to jump right back in, and I know Mike has a question that he wants to start off with, the second half. Yeah, uh, one of the things I really liked about the book, I mean, that authors do with novels in general is the, the references to other pieces of literature. And uh, in Severance, there's a reference to the red and the black, there's a reference to the Arabian Nights. And there's, there's also a point in the book where Candace is reading the, um, the Death and Life of Great American Cities by, by Jane Jacobs. And it's a, it's a, it was like a pioneering study in, in, in urban planning um, from somebody who was outside of academia. And in, in a lot of ways, I thought this book was a, a kind of reckoning with, with, with cities, with this, certainly New York. Uh, there are a lot of scenes that take place in New York. And uh, the way we behave in cities and the things we sacrifice just to be in a city and around other people. And there's, there's a passage at the end that, that talks about what it is to live in a city. And I know you lived in a, in a, in a few different cities. so. I wanted to know how that was on your mind, what your experience with different cities has been, and, and, and what you think about uh, our city. 
All right. Well, I'm going to tackle this question as a Chicagoan. <laughs> but um, I, I think a lot of this novel was in some way reckoning with um, a disappointment with New York. Um, you know, they start out watching like these romantic uh, New York movies. Um, but, and I think a lot of people, especially right out of college, go to New York, they think they want to work in publishing, they think it's a rom-com, and maybe <laughs> they watched a bunch of Sex in the City or something, but I, but, you know, I think New York is a city that we've all lived in in some way through cultural ephemera, and when we see the actuality of it today, which is if you think about Manhattan, like all the shell companies taking over um, and how it's basically taken over by Sex in the City tours or something, I just find it really disappointing. Maybe it's an example, maybe Manhattan is an example of the capitalist system running amok, coming, you know, doing whatever it wants, and that's what you get. I've, I don't know, I found it profoundly disappointing, and I don't think this idea of authenticity is really just fake. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you on New York, especially Brooklyn. If it, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> actually interesting. I moved here from New York, uh -huh. from Manhattan. Oh, no. Uh -oh. And I, I lived in New York. Yes, yeah, sorry. I'm a Mets fan. Get over it. Um, I lived in New York in the, in the uh, 90s, actually, when you mm -hmm. still could afford to be there. And yes. One of the things that struck me about your book was the characters were all in Brooklyn, which is a place that none of us on the Lower East Side ever went to because you just never went to Brooklyn because there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. But it also struck me, and it strikes me out listening to you, did you work in the publishing industry for a time? I did work in Bible Productions, first job <laughs> out of college. <laughs> uh -huh. It was very important to me that I got the details about Bible manufacture right. But this is set in 2011, and a lot of things have changed. I don't know what the trends are in Bible manufacture now. I'm very disappointed you and don't know I that. Think, <laughs> and they're actually really hard to, um, you know, it's a high value product. You know, they used to be produced in Singapore for some time. Some of them still are. Then it moved to China because it got cheaper. It may have moved to India at this point. Um, I'm not sure, but I wanted to make sure that the details about manufacture Bible manufacturer were correct, because it's so surreal to me. Yeah. Does anyone know what book outsold the Bible in the past decade? Ooh. Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, really? Yeah, Is that Fifty Shades of Grey. Whoa. Also, I have a joke. Yeah. How do you know <laughs> someone lives in Brooklyn? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Oh, <laughs> wow. So were, you That's were really firm. disappointed by, by your experience in New York City, though, personally? I'm, I'm just curious. Mm, personally, but also, from the experiences of my friends as well, hmm. who moved there. I think there's, interesting. A, there's a line in the book that Candace says, I, I watched every episode of Friends and hated them all. Like <laughs> well, I mean, come on, that's, that's realistic. Everybody hates Friends. That's just like real life. But I mean, I, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because the, the t it's disappointing in a way because New York is such a wonderful, magical place if you grow up there, which I kind of essentially did. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I moved to Chicago over 25 years ago, and I've never had the desire to move back to New York. And I think mm -hmm. Chicago's a wonderful city. But the, it's interesting that your disappointment of the city comes from the fact that it has been, as you correctly say, overtaken by an enormous uh, late-stage 
burst of capitalism that has turned places like Times Square that used to be seedy and kind of fun and wonderful into basically theme parks. And it would be interesting to hear you as a Chicagoan comment on what's going on with the current administration here, where Rahm Emanuel seems to be trying to do the same exact thing in our downtown and many of our neighborhoods. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on. <laughs> I wanted to mention something about um, yeah. when you were talking about the uh, fevered um, mm -hmm. and the uh, app applying it to real life. Um, I worked in a factory uh, in the 90s, and it was a flashlight factory, and they made those cop flashlights with the big tubes. Was this in Chicago? Uh, this was in West Michigan. Okay. And uh, you put them on a rack, put them in a chemical bath, pull the rack up, put them on a roller. That's what I did for eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I, I did it for about three months, but many jobs that I've had, I also worked at Whole Foods in the vitamin department. <laughs> uh, that mm -hmm. was probably my worst job, and these guys can tell you I've done some gnarly jobs. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I thought that's when I really, when it, you talked about that is when it really clicked with me that this is, you know, a critique of where we're going and, and the, you know, this like mad nonstop consumerism that we're involved in, that we live in, and, and people don't talk to each other anymore, and they're staring into their phones. And, um, and having jobs like that has made me really appreciate um, life. And, I, you know, I work in a very social job now. But what I'm getting at is, um, have you ever worked in a, I know you worked in publishing, and I know you worked in, with Bibles and things like that, but have you ever worked one of those jobs where you were fevered, where you were just doing the same thing all day long? I was a sandwich artist at Subway in high school. Artiste. Now this is in Topeka, Kansas. And it was a fun job. I mean, I liked making the sandwiches. <laughs> That's okay. all I can say. I'm gonna I... chime in with my worst job ever. When I, when I was 15, it was like right when they were starting to come out with the bottle counters at Kroger's. Mm -hmm. But I, I worked at this little liquor store. Oh, I did that too. Where you had to count the bottles by Michigan, hand. Michigan, you have to oh. count every can and bottle that comes back. Oh, to yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can top they that. They have to deposit. Ooh, earwigs. <laughs> I can top it. Oh, go, go. Recycling plant. Really? Describe. Oh, yeah. Pornographic it's the, bookstore. It's the ultimate, ultimate <laughs> boring job because you're sorting cans and bottles and that's all you do all day. It's just cans, bottles, cans. What bottles. did it smell like? You don't want to know. I worked at a pornographic bookstore It called the Velvet <laughs> Touch off the highway in, outside of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Nice if you can't oh, beat that. I pass that all the time. Yes. Velvet something. It, Velvet Touch. Worst job ever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Sorry. Severance. Speaking of jobs, all right. can you tell us a little bit about actually what your process is for writing the book? We haven't even talked about that at all. And that seems like a fairly important thing to get into with an author. Yeah, so this, as I mentioned earlier, it started out as a short story. And then as it got bigger and bigger, I, you know, I didn't have any experience writing a novel. I just did not know how to do that. So my mode of attack uh, was just, let me try to write the scenes that are most urgent to me that I know are somehow going to be in this novel in some way. And then maybe magically they'll just kind of come together and I'll write a few transitions here and there. And honestly, that was what happened. But <laughs> I didn't, it was really important for me because, okay, so I wrote the prologue first, but there was sort of a sense of urgency in the prologue. So it was really important to me that I felt excited about writing the scene at hand. And that's why I kind of kept switching 
things up. I had to go to where the momentum was and um, in order to write this. Um, so you're saying you're moved around kind of in the linear sense of the book. You wrote different things out of order. Exactly. And I didn't even know what the linear, what the plot was, to be honest, um, until towards the end I had a better idea. So you, you, you started with no plot a sense at all? You just had a sense of what the overall feeling of the book was and then I guess the ending sort of revealed itself to you? That Yep. And you had mentioned earlier um, Joshua Ferris's And Then We Came to the End. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I didn't read the finish the whole book, but I read like a good first third or first half of it. And it's that uh, first person collective, first person plural voice. Right. And that was my intention in the beginning, was to write a short story all in first person, plural, we. Um, what happened was that Candace's voice, there was a voice that kept popping out of this mass. And after a while, I understood, okay, this is the narrator who's going to take over the story, and this is actually first person singular. Um, but for a while, I didn't, I didn't know that, yeah. Did, does most of your writing start with short pieces that you then kind of put together, or mm. is this just kind of the first example of this for you? Um, well, this is the longest work that I've done. I think I used to work in, I used to do nonfiction work, sort of, I was sort of a journalist uh, back in the day, and I, the process is very strange because with like a journalism piece, I know what the story is before I begin, and I just need to figure out what the emotions are. I need to talk to like the people involved and get a sense of how they felt about it. So it goes from like plot and then to emotion. But with fiction, it's the reverse for me. I start with this emotion and I don't and I try to tether it back to narrative. So it goes emotion and then plot for me in terms and of And what the was sequence. the emotion you started this book with? Um well, there were two emotions. One was complete glee and one and the other was anger which is a very strange juxtaposition like yeah i saw that um an excerpt of the novel won won a prize in 2015 so you've been knocking this thing around for a while was was there an urge more recently to go back and retool a whole bunch of stuff Honestly, I'm so sick of it. I just wanted to like, I started it in 2012, I want to say. And then, um, you know, it was a little, it was very quick in the beginning. Then I had to slow down because I didn't have a job. So I had to figure something out. I got, I was accepted into an MFA program, uprooted my life, moved to Ithaca, New York. And then I, I was, had like secured funding for four years. So then I just kept, just kept going until I finished it in 2016, the first draft. And it sold that year, but we went through almost a year of edits with my editor, who is great, but she pushed me a lot, which is great too, but it was miserable. It was miserable at the time. I just kept saying, aren't we done already? And she's like, well, just a little here and there. And then, of course, it would spiral out into like a massive like amount of edits. Was that chapter written first? Or you said you wrote the prologue first, and then did you write the chapter later? Which chapter? The one oh. that won the award. Um, the Grey Wolf 
Prize. Yes, the oh, Grey Wolf Prize. I think it was just the, yeah, the Grey Wolf Prize, it was like the first, I want to say, thir 20 pages of the novel. Oh, okay. So all of that actually They said a segment, so I wasn't first. sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. MFA, worth it? <laughs> um, so <Great> my, ad <laughs> my advice <laughs> comes from Michael Shabon, who I saw um, speak at the Chicago Public Library some years ago, and somebody had asked him the same question, and he said, it's only worth it if they give you a lot of money and a lot of time to write. But if you have to go into an MFA, take a bunch of classes, do a ton of teaching, where is your time to write? So that's the approach I took when I applied to MFAs, like, just give me the money and give me the time. <laughs> like, that's that really what, what I need. Is that what your application you know? said? Uh, I think my application said I would be so honored to be accepted as your... Well, give me the money. And who, who was the editor, by the way, who worked with you on this book? Jenna Johnson at FSG. Okay. She's great. And, and also her um, assistant, Sarah Birmingham, is also fantastic. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because that's an under-thought um, part of the process. Some people mm -hmm. really hate their editors and some people really enjoy working with an editor. Mm -hmm. you, you said she, you, you, know, you were miserable while doing this, but that things uh, would, and, you know, I was miserable working with my editor, by the way, when, you know, it wasn't, it's not fun. For people that write for a living, it's never fun dealing with an editor. Um, but what about her suggestions helped you take the novel mm. to a better finished place? So when this book was being shopped around, there were two editors who were interested. And one editor, and I got a chance to speak with both of them. One of them told me that it was almost done. And then the other one, and this is Jenna, told me, I want to help you restructure this entire thing. And maybe I'm a masochist, but I was like, that's who I want. <laughs> that's who I want to go with, because I know she's going to put in a lot of time. And it wasn't that the other editor wasn't good. He was really great. But I guess I wanted someone to push me a little bit more. Um, and she was always dissatisfied. And for some reason, that <laughs> really got me like excited. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go through an agent, or were you doing this on your own? I went through an agent, yes. Okay. Mike's my editor. We just crack up the whole time. So. <laughs> we have a couple of questions from the audience, and since we're running out of time, we want to get to them. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam asks, how do you differentiate between a comforting routine and the routines people end up falling into for work? Mm, that's a great question. <laughs> Can you repeat it again? Sure. How do you differentiate between a comforting routine, this is like being on Jeopardy, isn't it? <laughs> and the routines people end up falling into for work. I think a work routine is actually very comforting. <laughs> um, I loved, I mean, even though I keep talking about, I don't know, everything I write is about dissatisfactions with work or with the corporation, but I actually really love the routines. Um, but I think the question is, what is the end game? And I think that's what, I think Candace knows that for her job, the end game isn't really, doesn't amount to much. But the question for Candace is, why am I still staying even though the end game isn't really there? Yeah, because at one point she, it seems to be financial, but I don't actually believe that's true. 
I think it's partly financial, but partly there's something compelling her to stay there. And I think she does get lulled, very lulled into working. But it also has to do with the background. You know, she is an immigrant. There is this imperative for success, and maybe that goes a little too far in her case. We've got another question. Corey asks, and I'm glad you put your names on this. Thank you for following directions tonight. Are there any literary aesthetics you found yourself actively working against? I'll talk about sex scenes right here. Um. <laughs> I thought they were well done. Thank you. <laughs> you could feel the awkwardness well, in one of them. Oh, wait. There are certain curse words I can't say. That's correct. But, <laughs> okay. So let me tread carefully here. Um, I find that sex scenes in fiction, it's either this, everything dissolves into this sort of miasma of like romanticism, or it's like straight up graphic and pornographic. So it's either making love or it's straight up effing, if I might That's say that. Fine. Banging. Let's say <laughs> and, banging. But like when I talk to my friends, 90% of the sex that they're having is they're just having sex, right? It's not effing, it's not making love, it's just having sex. It's the other F word. <laughs> That's functional. A, that's right, functional. <laughs> they're functional. <laughs> So I guess one thing I wanted to get right in this book was um, how people talk about having sex that's not making love and that's not effing. And that's like 90% of the sex out there. I'm not an expert, but that's love what it. I'm thinking. The sex scene between Candace and Jonathan was like my entire 20s, so it, 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 you did a great job. So yeah, you did a Thank fantastic you. job. <laughs> Thank you. What do you plan on doing next? Since you, you said you're already sick of this. Yeah, that's a really great question. I really don't know. <laughs> right now, you know, this book release has been like kind of overwhelming in a lot of ways. It's like release week. Um, I bought a Nintendo Switch last week and <laughs> I bought Zelda Breath of the Wild. Good for and you. that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, for those people that don't know, um, this book did arrive to what I would say fairly are rapturous and multiple reviews which is pretty unusual uh, for a book of this kind. Do you, do you plan, though, on, on trying to take some time off and other than playing Zelda and <laughs> researching a new book, or do you plan on trying to teach, or have you not even really thought about that? To be honest, I haven't thought about it. I know I have to teach starting October. I'll think about it in two weeks. I have a, I, I have a calendar. September 1st, think about syllabi. <laughs> You're going to be making the, the, the rounds here. This, this is the start of a, a kind of tour for you, yeah? Yeah, sort of. I don't really start anything till September. Oh, okay. Where, yeah. where else are you going? Um, I might be going to Norway, Oslo, hey. so that'll be exciting. Ooh. I read Nowscord's like my struggle when I was writing this. <laughs> I, it's maybe a, it's I'll meet one. him. <laughs> but, I'm yeah. sure your editor can arrange that since it's the same house. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's on FSG. That's true. But actually, that's too embarrassing. I heard he likes Zelda. <laughs> think about yeah, I heard, he, I heard he loves Zelda. Yeah. Good Carl to know. <laughs> yeah. Famous, famous Zelda player, Carl Ova Um It's unusual, actually, for authors to be going on a book tour in this day and age. We, we joke about this on the show, but it's a kind of a bitter joke because it used to be that authors would come and talk to people like this great crowd here. Um, and this doesn't happen very much anymore, which is actually one of the reasons we do this program, because otherwise a lot of authors don't get a chance to do this. This is, this is a really unusual opportunity for you. And it, it's, are you 
kind of taken aback by it. I mean, it seems like it kind of came out of left field. I got, I, got to, I got to interject here, though. I mean, a lot of authors come through Chicago. We just, uh, you know, you got the bookstores in Hyde Park, 57th Street. You got women and children first. That Those guys get a lot of the, the mm-hmm. tours. At, um, I know I'm, I'm a member at 57th Street, and they, they have, like, five writers a week. I'm just interjecting because yeah. I don't know if you've been down there in a while, but they... In fact, there's Kevin Elliott right there in the front row. <laughs> he works there, so. Yeah, but it's, still, it's unusual. It's not as popular as it once was. Book companies won't pay for that. They won't pay for big publicity. Has it, was it, has it been popular since I've been alive? Yeah, I mean, yeah, actually, I mean, my mom went on book tours, and she was always a middle-aged author. Oh, I author. see what you're saying. 70s or 80s? 70s and 80s, yeah. yeah no, I mean, most authors did go on book tours. Extensive. Yeah. If no, they, they went around period. the country. And so it's, it's unusual that you, you have a chance to go to Oslo and a chance to go to other places. I mean, it, did it kind of come out of left field for you, or did, did somebody call you up and say, oh, by the way, this is going to get rapturous reviews, and you need to pack your bags? Um, I think in the last month or so, I kind of realized this is a little bit bigger than I thought um, it would be. I... But actually, my book tour is pretty limited, I think. It's just New York, maybe a few festivals. Um, Are you I, going to Ithaca? Um, maybe in the future, if they invite me. <laughs> is that, I, I'm not very geographically inclined. Is that where Syracuse is? Is yep, that where you went to MFA? Yep, it's right uh, up there. Cornell, it, Ithaca, Syracuse. Yeah. Okay. Ithaca mm-hmm. is, Corn, yeah, is Cornell. And that's about four hours out of New York. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. went to Cornell? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you've gotten a lot of positive feedback, and I, and I don't know the exact meaning of this verb, so forgive me. <laughs> okay. have, you, have you been trolled? If I have, I didn't know it. Okay, so, so all, <laughs> all, all positive so far. I think it's positive. I don't really read a ton of my reviews. I read some of what's out there, but I think at some t- point, you just have to switch it off and separate yeah. like what's out there is different from... Yeah. what your actual life is. Um, well, I know we all enjoyed it, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, we did. I know. Someone did a story on the show, and someone put in the comments that hanging out with me in the 90s was like hanging out with a violent dog. So I don't, <laughs> I don't read, uh, I don't was, read those either. That was a DJ at our own yeah. station. That was uh, Todd Carter. I was, it, was a <laughs> little, it was a little upsetting. <laughs> I'll let Todd know that. Hey, but with that, this edition of I-94 is right. over because we're out of time with Ling Ma. Please give it up. Sergeant's author, Ling Ma. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Ling Ma, author of Severance, out now from FSG. This episode was taped in front of a live studio audience on August 16, 2018 at The Dial and originally aired on August 19th. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.